Our passage today comes from Psalm chapter 25. For those who are wondering, we will be starting a new series in the book of Luke next week, Lord willing. But before we get there, I want to spend some time thinking together today about prayer. Psalm 25 is a fitting text for that. Uh, It portrays, as so many of the Psalms do, not an imaginary life, uh, not an idealistic kind of life, but a real life, a life that is full of complexities and trials. Uh, As we will come to see, it is a a life that is replete with afflictions and difficulties, burdens, all of the, the heartache and confusion that comes with that. So it's an unvarnished look at an ordinary man's kind of life. It's something that we can all identify with, but at the same time, time it's, it's not a life that is without an anchor. Uh, this is a Psalm of David. Uh, he's describing real difficulties, uh, immense troubles, but David has not gone uh, AWOL, spiritually speaking. He is tethered in trust to the Lord in the midst of it all. There's no attempt at keeping up appearances. He doesn't whitewash or gloss over anything. He says life can be unimaginably complicated. It can be overwhelming, but he doesn't recount his troubles in any kind of way that suggests that his life is unhinged at all. He is looking to the Lord. So in that way, this serves as a very strong encouragement to us in the same, to make it our aim and our habit to go to the Lord with all of our burdens and confusion and troubles, the woes of life, our sin, and put our trust in him. With God's help, let's turn our hearts to hear Psalm 25 and then we'll consider it together. Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord." Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, 
and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is God's word. A word about the structure of this psalm. This is the first of several acrostic psalms in the Psalter where each line begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now that does a couple things. Uh, First, it puts certain constraints around how the psalmist is able to express himself. It's not like free verse, where you can just sit down and write whatever comes to mind. Here, David adopts a particular kind of structure, which means that he has to adapt his thinking, uh, the thoughts that come to mind, to fit within that structure. And so you can imagine this requiring some amount of creative thinking in terms of what would fit within those uh, confines that he has adopted for himself. And I think you can see uh, the spiritual prophet that would have come with that sort of exercise. We all have those well-worn paths that we like to tread whenever we go to pray. We find ourselves many times reaching for the same phrases, uh, uttering the same kinds of petitions, pleading the same kinds of promises, and before long, we've exhausted our repertoire. Nothing else comes to mind. Well, an acrostic would have meant taking probably a considerable amount of time to ponder, to meditate on the circumstances David was facing along with the goodness of God. You can imagine each letter of the alphabet coming forward and he would need to go beyond whatever immediately came to the forefront of his mind and probe a little bit deeper. Probably whatever first sprang to mind didn't fit that first letter and he would need to think, he would need to meditate, he would need to probe more deeply into the difficulties he was facing, into what the the rightful response to those difficulties before the face of God really was, Uh, to think more carefully about what bases he had to bring his petitions and his cares before the Lord. And so in that way, the structure of the psalm, rather than being some kind of literary straitjacket, actually would have been an exercise in faith and a blessing to David as he undertook it. I might suggest you try the same sometime. 
It also means that the flow of thought isn't as neat and tidy as maybe we would like it to be. It's not uh, quite as linear as we might expect. There's not a clear progression. It's more cyclical in nature. David will pick up a theme as it fits the, the format and then he'll lay it down for a little bit, uh, and then he'll, he'll come back and he'll, he'll revisit that after a while. Uh, there are, nevertheless, certain themes that begin to emerge. First, we see pleading prayer in verses one to seven, pleading prayer. This is a Psalm of David. We don't know what exactly uh, the background was. We don't know exactly what prompted its composition and that's just as well. It's one of those songs that all of us can identify with in one way or another. It resonates with every single one of us who who has been alive for just a little while. You can find something in this psalm that resonates. What we do know is that David is facing a myriad of trials. And just a quick survey of it reveals that there are external pressures and internal distresses. There are enemies without, and there are sins within. There are troubles that go named and unnamed. There are trials that you would describe as circumstantial, and then there are other things that are more psychological in nature. How will David manage such manifold crises? Verse one, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That is where he begins. Oh my God, in you I trust. Whatever the structure of the psalm might dictate for him, the circumstances of his life are such that he must begin by acknowledging his absolute dependence on God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. His soul flies up to the Lord in prayer. Brothers and sisters, that's what true prayer is. Christians are not those who are careful to, quote, say their prayers. They are those whose very souls rise up to God in dependence. That's what prayer is. It's it's described in various places in the scriptures as taking hold of God, crying out for help, imploring upon the Lord, casting ourselves upon him. Do you get the drift? Do you know something of this? It all gets at the same idea that the inner man is lifted up to the God of heaven in heartfelt trust, in love, in hope, in faith. This is the pattern for us. This is the pattern for the saints of God, whatever our concerns might be. Philippians 4 and verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, let everything you encounter in life be taken as an opportunity to let your soul rise up to God who has promised to guard you with his peace in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what David does here. He begins at the outset by orienting himself spiritually. 
He situates himself on the rock of his salvation. Before a, a single word of petition comes out of his mouth, there is this expression of trust and dependence. Oh God, I put my trust in you. Now, we come to the petition. What does David plead for? Why does he pray? Let me not be put to shame. In other words, don't let my faith in you, O oh God, prove to be to my embarrassment or to my shame. You can imagine that this was the, the very thing that David's enemies were waiting on uh, to have happen, to see the faith that he had in the Lord, in Yahweh, to be proven to be baseless, uh, to see the object of David's faith exposed as powerless, and consequently for David to be made a laughingstock uh, in the world. You might read some of the Psalms at times and wonder, how do I relate to passages like this? How do I, how do I relate to Psalms where the psalmists are always talking about fighting and, and enemies and war. It seems so far removed from the kinds of situations that, that, that we're facing in, in modern day life. Well, if you look at it, at, it, at it in these terms, if you think about what David is saying here, who am I trusting in? Where is my hope found? Who am I looking to for deliverance? And for salvation, it's actually not so far removed from what uh, we experience at all. We are those who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is that the Lord Jesus Christ has, has come. He has offered up his life for us. He has died. He has risen. He will come again. That is the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Our lives belong to him. They, they don't belong to us. We live for his glory. Well, the world looks at you and they want to hold you in derision for that. They cannot wait to see the faith that you express in Jesus Christ be proven to be baseless. It's over this very question, faith in God and in his beloved son, that the kingdoms of this world remain, what David describes here as wantonly treacherous. Treacherous without cause. They seek to bring disgrace to the children of God. The world looks at those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and they say, what a waste. What a waste. They wait to watch you and your faith be put to shame, but it's without cause. It's wanton treachery. And so how should we respond? Well, David shows us the way here. It's even as his faith is called into question that he lifts his soul up to God. This is not a time to falter. This is not a time to waver, it's a time to persevere in pleading faith. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. 
the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 12. David prays, don't let my enemies triumph over me. Let me not be put to shame. Now I want you to see where his thoughts take him next as we look at verse three. What does he follow that up with? He says, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. You have the same thing proclaimed in verse three that you have petitioned in verse two. Let me not be put to shame. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. And so there, there is desperation and there's declaration standing side by side. Why is that? Why do we pray for what we know to be true? Why does David say what he does in verse two if what he says in verse three is true? Church, isn't it the case that it's often as we are casting our fears and our cares upon the Lord that it's in that very moment that our hearts are strengthened to trust in what the word declares to us and what we know to be true. It's as we cast our burdens and our cares upon the Lord, as we confess the frailty of our faith, uh, the feebleness of our flesh to the Lord. We bring those things to the Lord. We crawl up into the lap of God, as it were, that we find our, our spiritual moorings strengthened in what God has declared to his people and we find grace to stand another day. It is in communion with God that we are reminded of his faithfulness and his love to us. In another place, the psalmist expresses the very same principle. In Psalm 73, it's a psalm of Asaph. He talks about his understanding. He talks about the truth of God, objectively speaking. And he, he starts off the psalm by saying, truly the Lord is good to, 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 to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. There's a truth you can count on. There is a truth you can absolutely depend on. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. No exceptions, no qualifications, no ifs, ands, or buts, anything of the sort, but. Then he goes on. He begins to talk about his own experience. He goes on to talk about his own subjective, personal experience of that Reality, And he says, well, when it came to my own personal experience, at least for a length of time, what I knew to be true just didn't seem to resonate. That truth, just it seemed to ring hollow. He says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the, the prosperity of the wicked." In a manner of speaking, he is, he, he's giving the anti-psalm to, to Psalm 25. He's saying his soul wasn't lifted up to the Lord. His trust wasn't set on God. He wasn't living in prayerful fellowship of the Lord. What was he doing instead? He became a student of the world 
and it showed. It colored his whole outlook on life. He came to the conclusion that his enemies were actually in a better place than he was. And you see the upshot. His faith begins to, to shrivel. He thinks to himself, well, maybe it was all in vain that I kept my heart clean. Maybe this was a waste of time, this, this separation from the world, this devotion unto God and to the things of God until something happened. What caused the light to break through? He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. There I discerned their end. What made the difference for Asaph? In a word, it was fellowship. It was fellowship with God, nearness to the Lord. It was there in the light of God's presence. It was there as he lifted up his soul to God that he got the kind of clarity that he needed the most about man and God eternity. His faith began to grow. Praise began to erupt, in fact, in his life. He said, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. See, brothers and sisters, it's in coming to the Lord that our souls are reminded of his faithfulness, of his promises, We find strength to persevere. Prayer is an exercise of faith. It's the signal expression of a soul that really trusts in the Lord. It was there as David's soul was lifted up to the Lord that he was reminded, none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. Lamentations chapter three and verse 25 says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Brethren, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. In your trials, in your testing, in your suffering, wait on the Lord. Lift up your soul to God. He will hear your cry. Make him your refuge. In Romans chapter five, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He goes on, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Paul here remembers and reminds the church what David also says, that they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. In the end, it is those who do not put their trust in the Lord that will be put to shame. But if you're in Christ, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put 
to shame. Now, still under this heading of pleading prayer, I want you to look at verses four and five with me. What do we need to know when we're pressed in on every side? We need to know what it looks like to follow God in the particularities of our circumstances. And so David prays in verse four, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Make me to know your ways, David prays. This is very instructive for us. David has trials that are real. He has trials that he longs to see removed from his life. He is in a crisis. Just look at verse two. But his supplications do not start or stop with God, get me out of here. Take away the affliction. I mean, that idea is there to be sure. But he also says, Lord, teach me to know how to follow you in the circumstances that you have ordained for my life. While I am still in this trial, teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. He's saying in a nutshell, deliver me, but also disciple me. Teach me, O God. There's urgency here, but there's also humility. There's meekness, there's submission, there's teachability. One of the things that often happens when we're thrown into the pressure cooker of life is that we, we grow hardened and our, our hearts become stony and calcified and hard and we can become spiritually unteachable. We get embittered and we, we find ourselves growing resentful at our lot in life. Not so here. Look at the tenderness of David's heart. As you consider your own trials, as you think about lifting up your soul to the Lord, let this kind of plea figure large in your prayer. Make me to know your ways, O God. Teach me your truths. Deliver me, God, but also disciple me. You'll notice that there's a subtle progression between verses 4 and verse 5. In verse 4, David prays to know God's ways. In verse 5, he prays that God would lead him in those self-same ways. He has been clinging to the Lord. He has made the Lord his trust, but you have to imagine the temptation to falter is real. That all of these Uh, tribulations, all of these afflictions, they are bringing with them a certain kind of fog that only God can cut through. He needs the Lord not only to make known to him his paths, but to take him by the hand and to lead him through this life. Notice also that David's plea here isn't so much to hear a word from heaven about a particular decision that he needs to, to, to make as it is to, to, to understand how to live godly where he finds himself. He thinks very differently about knowing God's will than we often do today. 
He's not asking whether he should take this job or that. He's not asking whether he should marry this person or not, whether to buy a Toyota or a Honda. What is he asking? He's asking to be led in the truth. He's asking to be taught by God. That is a prayer, brothers and sisters, we can all appropriate in our lives. We might think of Jesus' words in Matthew 6 and verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. Verses six and seven, you have a remember and a remember not. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. This is a Hebrew figure of speech we have here. The the, the idea is... is, um, focused more on the activity of God than his recollection. I want you to notice how it's not just enemies without that David is contending with, but there are also sins within that he is very much aware of. And he traces his whole life's worth of iniquity before the Lord and says, don't deal with me according to the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Instead, oh God, let tender mercies be your guide. Deal with me according to who you are, according to your very nature. He appeals to the mercy and the steadfast love of the Lord, which are of old. In other words, it speaks of God's unchangeableness, his unfailing disposition toward those who fear him. That brings us to our second theme, verses eight to 15, precious provision. In verses eight to 15, David moves into a a series of confessions of what he knows to be laid up for the Lord, in the Lord for him. He shifts from personal pleas to objective affirmations of trust. And it all starts with verse eight, good and upright is Yahweh. What does that mean for his people? Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Not the sinless, but sinners. This is something that David has established in his mind, that God instructs sinners in the way. What a precious truth this is to have guiding you through the course of, of your life, to have informing you in the way that you look at life. Do you know this to be true, beloved? Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. David is reminded of his sin. His unworthiness is brought to the forefront of his mind, but so is the goodness of God. So is God's mercy toward undeserving sinners. And so he can still go on looking up to the Lord. He can lift up his soul to the Lord in in confident expectation, knowing what? He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. This is God's 
provision. If God is good and upright, and he is, we can expect him to lead sinners in a path that's consistent with his character. He will lead us in a way that is good and upright. But we must learn to humble ourselves in persistent pleading prayer. We must pray. We must seek the Lord to know the provision that he supplies. Solomon said, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. It was humility in the life of Solomon that begat the wisdom that God poured out upon him. Look at verse 10. David says, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Brethren, consider what David reigns in there. That includes paths that are flanked by enemies all around. It it includes afflictions from which no immediate relief comes. It includes questions without any kind of answer. It is all-encompassing, isn't it? Yet, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. I wonder what kind of prism you are looking at life through as you consider your own circumstances, as, as, as you just think about what you are dealing with in your own life, your own psalm's worth of troubles, What kind of prism do you understand those things through? How do you understand the circumstances of your life? When you wake up in the morning, do thoughts such as this spring to mind? All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 31, verse 19, oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. If the goodness of God is an irrefutable, non-negotiable, incontestable fact in your life, if his steadfast love is indisputable, if it's an incontrovertible fact, you will find that your Trials, rather than eroding your faith, actually serve to strengthen it because you know that your paths are ordered of the Lord. You know that all of his paths are steadfast love and faithfulness. And so you will be able to count it all joy, my brothers. Now, if you're paying close attention, and I hope you are, you look at the verse, at the, you might look at the end of verse 10 and say, well, wait a minute. There's a qualification there. It says, for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. You might get the impression from the end of verse 10 that all hope is lost for people like us. For who can be numbered among those who keep his covenant and his testimonies? Praise God, the text doesn't leave us there. It doesn't leave us in that 
place. And you see how the standard of God's righteousness in verse 10 flows immediately into verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. You see, church, it's as we cry out to the Lord, it's as we plead for his deliverance that we remember how much we have strayed from the Lord. It's there that we remember just how great our sins really are as we stand in the light of his countenance and grace, how undeserving we are. And so David doesn't set himself forward as one who is blameless. He brings his sins and his failures before the Lord. But notice how he does that. Notice how he prays. For your name's sake, O Lord. Not for our name's sake, not for the sake of our faithfulness, but to glorify your mercy, to show forth the praises of your name, pardon my guilt, for it is great. In 1731, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on this text entitled, Great Guilt, No Obstacle to the Pardon of the Returning Sinner. He talks about the surprising logic of verse 11. I want to read you a bit of what he says. He he says, David not only doth not plead his own righteousness or the smallness of his sins, he not only doth not say, pardon my iniquity for I have done much good to counterbalance it, or pardon my iniquity for it is small and thou hast no great reason to be angry with me. My iniquity is not so great that thou hast any just cause to remember it against me. My offense is not such, but that thou mayest well enough overlook it. But on the contrary, he says, pardon my iniquity for it is great. He pleads the greatness of his sin and not the smallness of it and thus enforces his prayer with this consideration that his sins are very heinous. He pleads on the basis of his great need. You know what it is to pray that way. According to your namesake, O God, pardon my iniquity, for it is very great, greater than even I understand. Now, continuing with the provision. God supplies to his people, verse 12, who is the man who fears the Lord? You might expect a question like that to lead into a description of what what a man who fears the Lord looks like, but it doesn't. Instead, it flies directly into what this reverential kind of fear produces, what sort of blessings come with walking in the fear of the Lord. First, he echoes what he's he's already touched on. Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. He says the Lord will be with him. The Lord will superintend him on his journey. He will guide and direct his steps so that he will not falter. Verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. 
In other words, this man who fears the Lord will have nothing to fear because his soul shall dwell secure. Whatever may come in this life, he can take in stride because his soul dwells secure with the Lord. His destiny is sealed. Jesus told his disciples, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so there is in knowing God a safety and a security that supersedes whatever storms this world might bring. A well-being at the level of the soul that can't be taken away. Now we come to verse 14 and you have one of those uh, touchstone verses that has been a balm to so many believers throughout so many uh, generations of God's people. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. You have friendship and fear standing shoulder to shoulder. And here perhaps is the most profound reward in this text to know the friendship of the Lord. What does David mean? It entails close communion with the Father. The King James says the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. What do we mean by secret? Do we mean some kind of special revelation, some sort of higher understanding that only certain souls can uh, get a handle on or have access to? No, not at all. It's explained right here in the text, and he makes known to them his covenant. Now remember that David is speaking of those who are already in covenant relationship with the Lord. He's speaking of those who have already come to know the forgiveness and redemption of the Lord. And so we have to, to, to think and ask ourselves, what, did this, what does this mean? He's speaking of people like himself whose trust is already in the Lord, whose souls abide in well-being, who know the promise of God's inheritance. In other words, they already know God's covenant promises, and so this cannot mean that it is here in the friendship of the Lord that God discloses his covenant to them for the very first time. What does it mean then? Well, David seems to be saying something like this, that it's in knowing the friendship of the Lord that what is already ours in Christ is rubbed into the pores of our lives so that we grasp it more fully and we're able to live in light of it more faithfully. What is already ours in the Lord, we come to experience more fully, to have a deeper appreciation and understanding of, and live in light of that reality more fully. As we abide in him, we fear his name, we delight in his friendship, we come to appreciate more comprehensively what God in Christ has wrought for us at the cross. It's what Paul expresses in new covenant terms in Ephesians chapter three. He talks about how he bows his knee before the Father. 
He prays that Christ would dwell in the hearts of his people by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God that God would make known to you his covenant. Oh, for a deeper understanding of the covenant of God and the friendship of the Lord. Finally, we see plentiful pressures. Verses 16 to 22. David traces out his situation once more, just in summary fashion, he talks about how he battles loneliness. I wonder whether your theology of the Christian life has room for the friendship of the Lord and loneliness at the same time. Life in this world, life with God is complex, isn't it? It's not always as straightforward as we might like it to be. Can you know the friendship of the Lord and still experience loneliness on some level? You can. The troubles of his heart, he says, are enlarged. There are afflictions and troubles. He raises his sin. Yet again, there are adversaries. So again, he's pressed down, not only by a load of sin, but troubles in the world, external pressures, internal anguish. He needs grace to walk through deep distresses. He needs the mercy of God to cover all of his sin. Friends, can you find yourself here? God alone is the answer. God alone is the answer to it all. He is the only answer to the problem and perplexities of life. This psalm is going to close without a word of resolution. It is going to close without the eradication of David's enemies. It will close without the clouds clearing. There will be no rainbow in the sky, you don't get to the end and find this pretty bow tied up on top, but there is something better. Here, in the place of prayer, you have the friendship and the fear of the Lord. You have the knowledge of one who has grace enough for all of our trials, who has mercy for all of our sins. Now you get to the very last verse and David abandons the, cross, the acrostic. He turns from the troubles of his own soul and he thinks about the people of God at large. He says, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Now this isn't some orphan line that just doesn't have a place in the rest of it. David's not trying to shoehorn something in here that just doesn't fit anywhere else. It stands out for a reason. 
It's a word that says what is true for the king of Israel is true for all the people of God. The thing that David most needs in this place to draw near to God, to put his trust in the Lord, to know the Lord's forgiveness, to experience the friendship and the fear of the Lord is what all of Israel needs to know. And so it is with us. So it is with us. Let's pray. Lord, to you alone we lift up our souls. O God, we put our trust in you this day. Lord, our eyes are ever towards you. We pray that you would be the focus of our hearts, the object of our longings, the hope of our salvation. God, I thank you for the promise of your word that you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Lord, let our trust be in you and in nothing else. God, I thank you for our blessed hope that sustains us through the trials and afflictions of this life. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to, to look to you in our questions and our sufferings, and our burdens. Lord, work in us hearts that are humble and teachable. Lord, thank you for this glorious truth that the friendship of the Lord is for those that fear you. And I pray that we would have a deep realization of that experience. God, that you would wean us from worldly security. God, that you would wean us away from pining after what we think the world can give to us and cause our hearts to be set on you alone. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.